want to say thank you to Sean Little, who spoke for me last week, and Sean did a fantastic job, and really appreciate Sean. Also, I want to ask you to keep praying, if you would, for our deliberations about a building that we're considering. I know that feels like that's going on and on, but uh, uh, we would appreciate your prayers, and as I have more information, I will give you more information about that. So, uh, but do please keep praying for us. We would appreciate that. This morning, we're going to kick off a new series to start the new year, and it's called I Have My Doubts. Um, you know, our vision as a church here at City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We happen to believe as a church that God loves the city of Evansville, and we happen to believe that the real hope for the city of Evansville is the gospel and the radical change that it makes in people's lives. But I also recognize that even as I say that, not everyone agrees that the gospel is the real hope for this city or for any other city for that matter. Christianity has lost its cultural privilege in America. There was a time in which most people in America had at least a passing familiarity with Christianity, and uh, most people had largely a positive attitude toward Christianity's effect on society. But that day has long passed. We live in a post-Christian America, uh, and whatever people think they know about the gospel is likely wrong. And the prevailing attitude toward the gospel is it's not only not positive, but it is openly antagonistic. And the best way, of course, to, to combat, to respond to the culture's antagonism toward Christianity is to demonstrate how faith in Christ makes a difference in how we live, which we emphasize, by the way, in our vision statement when we say that we, we want to bring renewal to the city of Evansville through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? That we, we recognize that, that actions certainly and always speak louder than words. But there's also value in addressing intellectually head-on uh, some of the doubts and some of the objections that people have to Christianity. Because, in fact, there are probably people here in this room this morning that have some of the same doubts and some of the same objections to Christianity that many people in our culture have. And so in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at six of the most common doubts, six of the most uh, widespread objections to Christianity that people in our culture have. And my hope is that by the end of this series, that uh, you will have answers to some of your own doubts about Christianity, but also that you'll feel much more confident in speaking up for your faith uh, in Christ and in confident in responding to some of the doubts and the objections that people in your relational world have uh, to Christianity. I think it's fair to say, as we kick this series off, I think it's fair to say that the most significant trouble that people in our culture have with Christianity can be summed up by the word exclusivity. In other words, how can you possibly claim that Christianity is the only true belief system in the world? How can you say that you and only you have the truth and anyone who doesn't believe in Christ doesn't have the truth? How can you say that Muslims, that sincere Muslims or Hindus or Jews or Mormons or good people who happen to be atheists, how can you say that they're all wrong? That's, that's really the issue 
with exclusivity. This is the, probably the main thing that people respond to, that people object to, the main doubt that people have about Christianity. And so I thought this morning as we kick off this series that we would start with this doubt about Christianity, exclusivity. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it uh, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John in the New Testament, uh, chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading at verse 1. And I also want to welcome, I recognize that we have a lot of people who listen to us through our podcast or through our app, and just want to tell you that we are very delighted to have you guys with us as well. 1 John chapter 4, and let's begin reading at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. But may I just say this before I go further, that one of the best ways to start your new year could be an investment in a Bible. And if you, don't, if you can't afford it, you, know, you can download them for free on like uh, your iPad or your phone or something like that, on your smartphone. It would be a great way to kick off this new year, to get a Bible and maybe even to start reading through the Bible. And to bring that Bible here to church where we study the Bible on a Sunday morning. So bring it so you can make notes and all of that. And you can take it home and reflect on it. it I promise you this. I, pr- I, mean, I do make you this promise. Nothing will change your life as much this year as that. All right, I'll, I'll leave it at that. No more preaching on that. Okay, 1 John chapter 4. Let's start reading at verse 1. Dear friends, John says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Okay, so as it relates to the issue of exclusivity, I want to start with this point. So you can write this down or you can take this down somewhere. If you had a Bible, you could write it down in the Bible next to that uh, next to that passage of Scripture. Am I preaching on that again? All right, I won't say it anymore. But let me just say this. Here's the point. The Bible teaches that all religions are not equally valid paths to God. So there, let me just, it, let's just get it out there, okay? The Bible teaches that all religions are not equally valid paths to God. In fact, it explicitly teaches that only Christianity is a valid path to God. Now, That's an exclusive claim. And I realize that people who object to Christianity would also object to me using the Bible as any kind of authoritative statement on reality or on religion or anything else. But I would just ask you to hear me out, all right? Just just hear me out. I start with this point that the Bible teaches that all religions are not equally valid paths to God. I start with that point because I think we could all agree that that if you or I were to go out to the streets of downtown Evansville or uh, to the sidewalks of USI, or to the campus of U of E, uh, to a Starbucks on the north side or the east side, if we were to go to any of those places and we were to ask people uh, their opinions of the different world religions, I think it's fair to say that the most common answer that any of us would get to that question, and what do you think about the, about the different world religions, I think the most common answer is that all of them are equally valid paths to God. I mean, don't you agree? That's, that's, that's what most people would say. Okay, it's the most common objection to the idea of exclusivity. There can't just be one. Uh, they're all equally valid paths to God. You hear this, you read it, you see it everywhere. That no one religion uh, has all the truth. All of them are essentially teaching the same things, and they're all equally valid paths to God. But I want you to notice 
that here in 1 John chapter 4, within the sacred text of one of the largest religions in the world, is the statement that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. Meaning, at, at least this. I mean, I, I realize that some people don't, and some of you would object to me using the Bible as an authoritative statement. But just accept this much, okay? Accept this much from me. That if it says that there are many false prophets that have gone out in the world, it, that, that means that all religions must absolutely not be teaching the same thing if one of them says that the rest of them are wrong. Do you feel me on that? You know what I'm saying? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Okay. So like if one says the others are wrong, they're not all teaching the same thing. Okay. Either those religions are false or Christianity is false, but logically they can't all be true if one is saying the others are false. Okay. But, okay, the critic of Christianity doesn't believe the Bible to be authoritative. And so he or she would argue that to make such an exclusive claim, even for the Bible to make such an exclusive claim, to say that only Christianity has the truth and that the other religions are invalid, they would say, well, that's just your naivete speaking. And they might use an illustration like this one to show you why. And, and maybe you've heard this illustration before. It goes like this. A group of blind men uh, come upon an elephant. And they all grab a hold of the elephant at different places. And each of them begins to describe what the elephant is like based on uh, where they are on the elephant. So, for instance, one of them grabs a hold of the trunk of the elephant. Of the elephant, and he says, "Ah, elephants are long and flexible creatures." And then another one, though, has a hold of the leg, and that one says, "No, no, 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 no. Elephants are very short and thick and stiff creatures. They're not long and flexible. They're short and stiff." Then another blind man has, uh, you know, is touching the side of the elephant, and and that blind man says, "No, you're not. Neither one of you are right at all. It's it's huge and flat." Uh, the elephant, and they begin to argue with one another. Each of them says, no, no, your, your view of the elephant isn't right. And as they're arguing, we realize that every one of them is right and every one of them is wrong because they all have part of the reality of the elephant, but none of them can see the whole elephant, right? You, you understand where we're at so far? Okay. In this illustration, the elephant, of course, represents truth, and the blind men each represent a, you know, a religious leader that's trying to describe truth. And in their naivete, in their blindness, they believe that truth is limited to what they have experienced. And so the illustration concludes by saying, so all religions, you see, are the same. All religions see part of the spiritual truth, but nobody can see the whole thing. And so no one should insist that they have the entire truth and that's how we ought to understand religions. And at first, when you hear that illustration, it sounds very, it sounds very humble, uh, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, you know, okay, I kind of get that. Truth is, truth is so much greater than any of us can grasp. Um, so we should never be so arrogant to say that ours is exclusively right. That kind of makes sense, Right? But what's the problem with the illustration? What's the problem with the illustration? The only, here's the problem. That was a rhetorical question. You didn't, if you didn't know the answer, that's okay. I wasn't really asking you to give me an answer. 
If you're new here, I'll do that from time to time. I'll ask a question. It's rhetorical. You don't have to feel like you have to shout the answer out to me. What's the problem with the illustration? Here it is. The only way that the person using that illustration, so like the, the critic of Christianity, the only way that the person using that illustration could possibly know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality of the elephant is if that person could see the whole elephant. In other words, the person using the illustration is not being humble at all about truth because he or she is saying, I see the whole truth, which is the very thing that he or she is saying nobody else can see. In other words, I am enlightened enough to see the whole truth. Christians don't see the whole truth. Muslims don't. Buddhists don't. Mormons don't. Atheists don't. But I can see the whole truth. And they're each wrong. All of them are wrong that they have the exclusive truth because only I can see the whole truth. So you see, it's not that humble at all. In fact, it's actually incredibly arrogant to say when a person says all religions are equal, that's an incredibly arrogant thing to say. Because when a person says no one has a superior take on spiritual reality, that is a take on spiritual reality, which that person is saying is superior to everyone else's. Do you understand how that works, right? So it's like I'm saying I know the truth, but you don't. I can see the whole elephant. You can't see the whole elephant, which is a superior view. It's not humble at all. It's actually a very arrogant view, which brings us back to the principle that the Bible teaches that all religions are not equally valid paths to God at all. And either Christianity is right and all the other religions are wrong, or they're all right and Christianity is wrong, but they can't all be right. All right? So that's the first point. Okay? Bible teaches all religions are not equally uh, valid paths to God. That's a very exclusive claim, I understand. But it says that. And so logically, they can't all be equally valid paths to God. Okay, here's a second point that I want you to see from these verses as it pertains to this issue, this doubt that people have about exclusivity. We're going somewhere. We'll get there at the very end. But I've got to lay a little groundwork here, okay? So I want you to see this. Second point as it relates to exclusivity. Here it is. Religious views are not merely cognitive. They are supernaturally motivated. Religious views are not merely cognitive. They are supernaturally motivated. Now notice what John says. He says in, in, in this passage, he says, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. And then he he says this. This is very interesting. He says, because many false prophets uh, have gone out into the world. Now, here's what's interesting about that. It's very clear that John is talking about, when he he uses the word prophets, it's very clear that he's talking about religious leaders, teachers, prophets, people who would opine about uh, uh, religious truth, okay? So it's very clear he's talking about them. So here's my question. Why doesn't he say, test the prophets or test the teachers? See, he doesn't say test the prophets or test the teachers. What does he say? Test the spirits is what he says. He says, test the spirits. Now, why does he say that? Well, because what John is trying to get across is that religious views, the Uh, Thoughts and opinions that people have about religion are not like, uh, let's say, political opinions 
or economic opinions, which are merely cognitive intellectual positions. No. What this text is saying is that behind the range of all of the religious views that exist in the world, there are very real, unseen spiritual influences behind all of those. So a religious view is not like a political view. It's not like an opinion about which baseball team is going to win the World Series. It's not like an opinion about whether the Cowboys or how much the Cowboys are going to beat Detroit today in the playoffs. It's not like an opinion about that stuff. Okay? Uh, it is, it's, like, it, it's, it's a spiritual thing. An, un, an unseen spiritual force is behind every view that people have about religious things. Okay? Which explains why, by the way, that despite the prevailing belief in our culture that religion, not political or economic ideology, but religion, the belief in our culture is that religion is the number one barrier to world peace. Despite that belief, religion in general is actually on the rise around the world. In other words, the religious impulse is not simply natural, but it's supernatural. Okay? There are unseen powers at work in the world that cannot be stamped out by human education or human reasoning reasoning or political ideology. And this is true of religion in general. But I want to speak to I want to speak to that issue with respect to Christianity for just a moment because I want you to understand something. It is true that Christianity in America is on the decline, but it is not on the decline everywhere in the world. In fact, it is thriving in places like Africa that have gone from uh, 9% Christian almost 100 years ago to 50% Christian today. Just in 100 years. It's on the rise. Okay. Korea has gone from 1% Christian to 45% Christian in the last 100 years. And the number of Christians in communist China is growing so rapidly that by 2030, China is expected to have more Christians than America. And so religion is on the rise. And that's true not just of Christianity. It's true of other religions in the world as well. It's on the rise. Despite the fact that people believe that religion is the number one barrier to world peace in the world. Religion is still on the rise. And so despite the hopes and promises of many people in our culture over the last 300 years that religion would just kind of go away as we became more scientifically advanced... That's just not happening. Why? The answer is because religious beliefs are supernaturally influenced. Now that's important because I want you to watch this. I want to read on from verse 4, if you would. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is, by the way, the word them referring to the false spirits, okay? to the spirits who, who, uh, who influence people uh, with false views about uh, Christianity. Okay? You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We're from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, I want you to write this down. 
or make a note somewhere. Everyone, everyone has a set of exclusive religious beliefs. Now make sure you get that. Everyone, that includes you, everyone has a set of exclusive religious beliefs. It's it's impossible to not have exclusive religious beliefs. Now, I'm going to explain from the text how this is true. And then for those of you who would not, um, uh, who would not find any uh, authority in the Scripture, I'm going to uh, explain it to you in a different way in just a moment. But let me start with the text. Throughout this passage, you may have noticed that John splits people into two categories. In fact, back in verse 2, John says, he says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So, John says there are two categories. Either you believe in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, let me, okay, just a little parenthesis here. Uh, John is very careful to add the title Christ, which is the Greek translation for Messiah which includes uh, deity, sovereignty, uh, physicality, in other words, that he was, that he was human, uh, and acceptability as the sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And, and by that, what John is trying to say is, you either believe that Jesus is the, not a, the Messiah for the world, or you don't. You are either in one of two camps, both of which are religious. One is a camp that says, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. That's a religious belief. But then the other is, I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. That's a religious position as well. Now, I want you to notice that John doesn't distinguish between every possible falsehood about Jesus Christ. For instance, John doesn't go through, he doesn't outline uh, Islam's beliefs about Jesus, mostly because they weren't around at that time. But he said most, he doesn't outline Islam's beliefs about Jesus. He doesn't outline Buddhists' beliefs about Jesus, nor does he outline the atheists' views about Jesus. He just lumps all of those together as viewpoints that are from the world about Jesus that are not true uh, and not from God. And so, in other words, What John is saying is that Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the dividing line between truth and falsehood. And John says, everyone has a set of beliefs about Jesus, which by definition are mutually exclusive. Everybody does. Some people say, yes, he's the Messiah. Some people don't. Those are all religious beliefs. And they are exclusive. Because you can't say, Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Messiah uh, at the same time. You, you can't say that. It's just not possible. So everybody has religious beliefs. Everybody. And by definition, they're mutually exclusive. Now, again, as I said a moment ago, I realize that there are pe- some people here, maybe some people listening, who would say, I really don't care what the Bible says because I don't recognize the Bible's authority. So, as I said, I want to just make this point outside of the Bible for just a moment. Perhaps two of the most widely known critics of Christianity in the world today, coming from very different fields, are Richard Dawkins and Bill, uh, Bill Mayer. Uh, both of them, as I said, very different fields, and they have appealed to vastly different audiences. And so that's why I chose these two guys. Let me start with a quote from Richard Dawkins from his book, The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins is, uh, for those of you who may not know, a uh, very famous uh, scientist, very prolific, uh, and an atheist. And he says this. This is from his book, The God Delusion. 
He says, faith can be very, very dangerous. And to deliberately implant it into the vulnerable mind of an innocent child is a grievous wrong. Okay, so first, would you just notice that Dawkins has a set of religious beliefs? Uh, He has beliefs about religion. He believes that there is no God. And, of course, Jesus can't be the Messiah. And then he also says that it is very dangerous. Okay? So that's his set of religious beliefs. But I also want you to notice that his belief is exclusive. He calls teaching a child about God a grievous wrong. Now that's exclusive. Because he doesn't say, well, it's equally valid to teach a child about God as it is to not teach a child about God. He doesn't say that. He says, it's wrong to teach a child about God. That's an exclusive religious belief. Okay? In other words, he's saying, I'm right about God, and those who don't agree are wrong. And, as I said, that, by definition, is an exclusive religious belief. Now, let me just give you another example. This is from Bill Mayer. He's a comedian. He's the host of a talk show on HBO. He made a documentary back in 2008, and the documentary... Uh, was, uh, it was called Religulous. And I say documentary in the loosest form of the word. But it was a documentary, and, and it was classified as such. It was, called, it was called Religulous. And in the documentary, Mayer argued this. He said, religion is the most dangerous threat facing mankind, and that, he said, it must die for mankind to live. Religion. Okay. Please note that again, let, let me read that to you one more time. Religion is the most dangerous threat facing mankind, and it must die for mankind to live. Okay, again, that is a belief about religion, that it is a dangerous threat to mankind. And it is also extremely exclusive. Mayer's not saying that those who believe in God have an equally valid approach to life as he does. He's saying Those who believe in God have an invalid approach to life. That's an exclusive religious view. And what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to make the point, everybody has a set of exclusive religious beliefs. Let me me use one more. Let's use the idea. Let's just say that you went to somebody in the street and you said, hey, tell me your idea about, uh, tell me what you think about the different world religions. And and, and let's say that they said, well, you know, all, uh, all religions are equally valid paths to God. Let's use that, okay? That too is a religious belief. And it is also exclusive. Because it says that if you believe all religions are not equally valid, then you're wrong. And that's exclusive. You see, everybody has a set of exclusive religious beliefs. Everybody does. And so for those who point their finger at Christianity for having a set of exclusive beliefs... You know the old saying, you point at somebody, what's, what, you know, how does it go? You got three fingers pointing right back at you, right? So they're saying, you're, they're, they're saying, you know, you, you're wrong. You, you know, I, I object to the fact that you have this uh, exclusive belief. Well, they have three fingers pointing right back at them because they too have a set of exclusive religious beliefs. Everybody does. You can't not have a set of, uh, a set of exclusive religious beliefs. Therefore, what the, re- what the issue really is, it's, it's, the issue is not who has exclusive beliefs and who doesn't. The issue really is which set of exclusive beliefs is right. Which doctrine 
is right. That's why I don't mind. That's why I stood here at the very beginning and said, the Bible says that all uh, paths to God are not equally valid. That's an exclusive claim. I don't mind telling you that. And you can judge me all day long for being arrogant about that by saying, you know, by making an exclusive claim. And you know why you can judge me? Because I know you have an exclusive religious claim as well, an exclusive religious belief as well. We all do. Everybody does. It's not who does and who doesn't. It's which set of exclusive beliefs is right and which one, which set is wrong. And here's the thing. You get to make that decision for yourself. So see, I'm not here to indoctrinate you. You get to make the decision for yourself. And you will either be right or wrong on the basis of your choice. Because remember, not everybody's right. Everybody can't be right. Because everybody's saying different things. So you will either be right or you will be wrong on the basis of your choice. And you need to know that there are very high stakes surrounding this decision. And you also need to know that not making a decision is making a decision. But you get to make it for yourself. I just, as I, I just, I'm going to close here because I do want to point you to three things that distinguish Christianity from every other religious belief system, whether it's a form of theism or atheism, which is, you know, atheism, ah, theism, not theism, no belief in God. And here are the three things that I, I just think we can take from this text that distinguish Christianity from all the other world religions. So as you make your decision, some of you who either are here and making a decision about this or maybe listening as you're thinking about it, as you're meditating on it, here are three things that distinguish Christianity from other religions. First, the origin of Jesus' salvation. The origin of the salvation that Jesus brings. Look back at verse 2 again. John says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, it's interesting how John puts this. He doesn't just say that Jesus Christ was born in the flesh, though, of course, he was. That's what we just got done celebrating a few weeks ago at Christmas. What John says, though, he says he came, which means that he was somewhere before he was in the world. Uh, he, he, was, he was somewhere else. This is an implicit claim which is made explicitly elsewhere in the, uh, in the book of the Gospel of John and in the epistles of John here in 1 John, uh, 2 John, and 3 John. And the explicit claim is that where every other religion claims that its founder is just a human being, he's a human being only, Christianity says that in Jesus Christ, God came into the world. Now that's something that's different about Christianity from every other world religion. The origin of Jesus' salvation. Okay. And here's the second. Uh, the second distinction. Second distinctive of Christianity. And is the purpose of Jesus' salvation. Again, I want you to look back. The purpose of Jesus' salvation. Again, look back at verse 2. That says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Why? Why does he say that? Why is it important that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? 
Well, it's important because this is another area in which Christianity and other religions are so different. Other religions see the purpose of salvation to liberate you, to escape, uh, to, to get you to escape the physical world. The physical world. All other religions say the physical world is the problem. Only Christianity says that at the birth of Jesus, God received a body. And at the resurrection of Jesus, we see that the salvation that Jesus brings is not to escape the flesh. It's not to get away from the flesh. It's not to get away from the body. It's not to get away from the material. It's to redeem it. It's to redeem and renew this physical world, this material world that we live in. Jesus wants to get rid of death, and he wants to get rid of disease, and he wants to get rid of poverty, and he wants to get rid of injustice, and he wants to get rid of what's broken about the world. He wants to get rid of racism. He wants to get rid of all of that, what's broken about this world. But he doesn't want to get rid of the world. No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the material, physical world the way the cross and the resurrection of Jesus do. That's the second unique thing about Christianity that you need to consider. And then here's the third and the last one. Not just the origin of the salvation that Jesus brings, not just the purpose of the salvation that Jesus brings, but the method of Jesus' salvation. The method of Jesus' salvation. And I just say this. In every other world religion, we're told this. If you want to be saved, you have to perform. You have to do the truth if you want to be saved. You have to love other people. You've got to love your family. You have to love your neighbor. You can't violate whatever the code of conduct is. And if you do all of that, at the end of your life, if God sees that you've done all of that, then you will be saved. That's what every other world religion tells you. To be saved, you have to do. But that's not what the gospel says. Look at verse 10. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Christianity is different in that in Christianity, Jesus is not mainly a teacher who comes and tells us uh, how we should live and so that by living in that way, we can be saved like other religious leaders. In Christianity, Jesus isn't that. Jesus, Jesus is a savior who lives the life that we should have lived and dies the death we should have died in our place and he pays the penalty for our sin. And, and here's, here's why that's important. So that non-loving people like me, like I'm not, I'm not perfect. I don't love people perfectly. I don't, I don't even love my whole family perfectly. I don't, I, don't, I don't love Jesus perfectly. Non-loving, non-virtuous, non-performers of truth in Christianity can be saved by radical grace. That's the method of Jesus' salvation. In every other world religion, it's not grace. It's you performing. But in Christianity, it's Jesus performing. Because I couldn't. 
grace. That's the method of salvation, not performance. Those are the three things that are unique about Christianity. And my guess is that for many of you here today or who are listening to this, that is very different than the version of Christianity you learned as a child or that you've been spoon-fed by Hollywood or news media. Christianity, unlike any world religion, eliminates self-righteousness and superiority. Now, look... Don't get me wrong. I realize there are people who don't really understand Christianity very well that are self-righteous and, and feel superior and they're sitting in churches. I get it. I mean, like I've experienced some of that myself. I mean, I've worked in churches for 24 years. Believe me, I know Christians can be self-righteous and superior, but that, they're not getting that from the gospel. They're getting that from bad understanding and bad teaching about the gospel. Christianity eliminates self-righteousness and superiority because it says you're not saved because you're wise or good or virtuous. You're saved only because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're no better than anybody else. You're, you're a sinner in need of grace. That's different than the other world religions. And Christianity says that the objective is not to get out of this world but to redeem this world, which means that you serve people that's what Christianity says. You serve people. And frankly, some of those people, they're going to be more moral than you. They might be better people than you. They might be better citizens of the city than you. And so you serve people. Serve the city of Evansville. Make this place. This is what the gospel, this is what Christianity says. Serve the people Serve Evansville. Make this place a great place for all the people of the city to live. Bring a spiritual and social and cultural renewal to this city on the basis of the gospel of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's Christianity. Bottom line, if you forget everything else I said today, and you wouldn't forget everything else I said today if you brought a Bible and wrote it down in the margin of your Bible. But for those of you who might not have done that, here's the bottom line. Everyone has exclusive religious beliefs. Everyone. Even you. The question you might ask yourself is, is simply this. As you try to make your decision about which set of, which set of exclusive beliefs is right, Ask yourself this, which set of beliefs leads to the most inclusive behavior? And the Bible's argument is that only Christianity does that. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled by the gospel. When we come to the cross, we see a Savior who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, we are humbled at the cross because we recognize that we are all sinners in need of grace, that there's nobody better than anybody else. Lord, for those that are they're here today, that perhaps they've been, you know, this is one of the issues that they have about Christianity. Maybe, maybe there are people here who've uh, kind of sitting on the periphery of Christianity looking in, and it kind of angers them, the, the sense of exclusivity that, you know, Christianity claims. I, I pray that, Lord, that perhaps that you would just make it very clear to their hearts that everybody has a set of exclusive religious beliefs. And for those here that maybe have been wondering about this, maybe they've even kind of been ashamed of this, uh, 
this exclusivity that Christianity claims. Uh, Lord, I pray that perhaps you would give them a sense through the Spirit of God, a, a sense of confidence and a sense of recognition that everybody has those exclusive religious beliefs and maybe even give us a boldness about proclaiming our faith in Christ that perhaps we've never had before. And as we go through this series, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, change us. pray that there would be many who would make decisions that they want to receive what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. That they want to believe in him. Lord, bring us to the cross and let us recognize that at the foot of the cross, we're all made very equal. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.